You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Hey, Father, thank you. Thank you for the awesome opportunities you have in front of us. Thank you for your word. Um, Lord, that, that is one of the biggest opportunities right now that your word is open in front of us, and we ask, God, that you would come and speak to us through your word. We ask, Father, that you would come through the power of your spirit, and through the power of your spirit and through the preaching of your word, that you would unleash the furious love of Jesus upon our hearts today. We beg you to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32. I want to read. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. To think about this. Our lives are clothed in our words, our thoughts, and our actions. Our, our lives clothed in our words, our thoughts, and our actions. I mean, if you want to know the quality of a person's character, just, just simply study their words, their thoughts, and their actions for a while. So I've, I've found this to be a principle that is true and, and helpful, and, and it, I think it's a wise practice, too, um, for people who are pursuing uh, like new relationships, whether that's a romantic relationship or a, a business relationship or, or even a friendship, right? Someone has said that, that God has given us two ears two eyes, and one mouth, so therefore we should listen and observe twice as much as we speak. Seems kind of wise. And in the context of new relationships, what I think is that this pattern of listening and observing the other person's words and thoughts and actions, what it does is it helps to protect us, right? It it can protect you from, from getting into a harmful or destructive relationship. Um, it, it also slows down the mad rush. Anybody know what that's like too? Especially romantic relationships. Oh, she likes me. Mad rush right off the cliff, right? Um, I think this kind of practice slows that mad rush over the cliff into destructive relationships down. It's much easier, I think, if you think about this though, it's much easier to grasp what I'm saying uh, if you think about it in terms of other people, right, and, and your assessment of other people or your evaluation of other people, it's a little easier to be externally focused in our assessment of others. <coughs> it's much harder, I think, um, to practice this um, when evaluating or assessing our own lives, when we turn the gun on ourselves, so to speak. Um, Easier to evaluate and assess other people around us, but much harder, much more painful even to to evaluate our own character. Much harder to listen to and to observe our own words, our own thoughts, and our own actions. Because what happens when we do this is that sometimes we must admit painfully at times that we actually fall terribly short of our own expectations. Not to mention God's expectations. You think about the expectations that you and I place upon other people, and the reality is we fall terribly short often 
as well. See, God says, be holy as I am holy. He says, keep a close watch on yourself. He says, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. He says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And he says, walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called. God's word is chock full of explicit and implicit um, instructions, commands, regarding this truth that our lives are clothed in words, thoughts, and actions, and we must evaluate them. We must guard them. We must protect them. We must pursue holiness in them, and that's Paul's focus in our text for today. Apostle Paul has previously instructed the Ephesian believers to no longer walk as the Gentiles do. We talked about this last week, right? No longer walk as the Gentiles do, but instead put on the new clothing of the Christian life. In essence, what he has said is that if we are followers of Jesus, if we claim the name of Christ and say, I'm a Christian, if we do that, then, 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 then our old lives are gone and we are new, right? And if that's true, then we're to no longer walk as the Gentiles do, but instead put on the new clothing of the Christian life. And we may feel more comfortable and more familiar with our old clothes, our old ways of talking, our old ways of thinking, our old ways of behaving. Patrick said to me last week, it's like an old pair of shoes. Um, yeah, just in some regard, you're used to wearing that old pair of shoes. Get a new pair of shoes, they become a little bit uncomfortable and restrictive, right, until they get broken in. Um, but the reality is if you continue to wear the old shoes, your feet you're going to be in bad shape. So your back maybe and your knees. And so new shoes are important. Sometimes hard to adjust to though. The reality for us is that we should strive to put on Christ himself. That there should be a visible difference between the walk of a professing believer and the walk of a professing unbeliever. There should be a visible difference in the words, the thoughts, and the actions that clothe the life of a believer. And as Paul drills down into what it looks like in our text um, for a Christian to put on the clothing of Christ's likeness, what he does is he lays aside all of kind of the grand, uh, like cloud level, um, big language. Um, and he just gets right down in the dirt with us. Real nitty gritty, um, real bare bones, uh, real practical, uh, real straightforward, very clear. Six things that he says to us. Number one, speak the truth because you belong to each other, right? Verse 25, speak the truth because you belong to each other. He says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Now, Paul begins all of his instruction here by focusing on our words. And not just focusing on our words, but the effect that those words have on people around us. And he's going to circle back around to this topic again in verse 29. But here, here in verse 25, he, he begins with the foundation of how our words should be characterized. He begins with what our words should look like. That they should be characterized, clothed in the truth instead of deception. Our words should be clothed in honesty instead of lying. The words that we use should be clothed in, 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 in integrity rather than cheating. Our words should be clothed in, characterized by faithfulness instead of unfaithfulness. That they should be full of integrity. They should flow out of hearts that are trustworthy and faithful, not double-minded, as James says. A double-minded man is unfruitful or unfaithful in all his ways, I think. Somebody might correct me about that, but I think that's what he says. The reason that Paul is concerned with this is there's a reason, right? Not just concerned about this so that you and I can get check marks on our uh, go-to-heaven list, right? Or our we're a good Christian today list. There's a reason that Paul is concerned with this, and I think it's because our words have a serious effect upon the people around us. 
Uh, we are far uh, too individualistic in our culture. We often fail to understand uh, the, 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 the ramifications of our words upon the communities that we belong to. Th think for a minute with me about the communities you belong to. And, and think with me here on, on this too. Th th think about the negative and untrue things you say to yourself about yourself. Okay? Now, some of us struggle with this more than others, but every one of us in this room, I think, at times, has said untrue things about ourselves in our heads, right? If not out loud. Oh, so stupid, right? That's not true, right? Might have done something stupid, but that doesn't make you stupid, right? But we all know that our actions don't define who we are, and yet we fall into this so easily. So think about the negative things and untrue things you say about yourself in your head and how destructive those words can be to your soul. Now take that same truth and apply that to, to the communities that you belong to, 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 to your coworkers and your friend groups or your spouse or your children or your gospel community or your, your church family or how about your social media community. Like, listen, our words, your words have the power to speak life into the communities that you belong to, and, and they also have the power to speak death destructively into the communities that you belong to. So speak the truth because you belong to one another. Number two, do not nurse your anger because it gives Satan an opportunity for destruction. Do not nurse your anger because it gives Satan an opportunity for destruction. Verses 26 and 27, Paul says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Paul, Paul doesn't say that anger is a sin. Eh? Or that we should not be angry. He's more concerned that we should not become sinfully consumed with anger. Anger, anger is an emotion that, that all of us in this room feel, okay? Um, we express it differently when it comes out. We all feel it internally. And it's an emotion that we feel when we're disappointed. That's what's underneath anger. It's disappointment. And we become disappointed when someone or something fails to meet our expectations, right? You have an expectation, doesn't get met, become disappointed, disappointment then turns into anger. <coughs> For instance, when I take my car into the shop for a repair, which I have done recently, and I pay a few hundred dollars to get it repaired, which I have done recently, <coughs> and then I get it back sometime later, which I did recently, and it breaks down again a few days later, which it did <laughs> recently. I become disappointed, which I did recently. And then you get angry, which I did recently, right? <laughs> and the mechanic didn't meet my expectations. Um, I expected to receive a good running car for the few hundred hard work dollars that I spent. And I was disappointed. I didn't get what I expected to get. I, did, I didn't get what I wanted. You could even take it further and say, I didn't get what I thought I deserved, which that becomes a whole entitlement issue, and we're not going to go there right now. But <laughs> I was angry. What would be an appropriate way to express that anger would be a question. We won't get into that. But if you'd like to know, you can ask me afterwards. I mean, this happens to all of us on occasion, right? Happens to all of us on occasion. Sometimes it happens daily, okay? Marriage, parenting, friends, coworkers, um, employers, projects that you're trying to do. Like the list can go on and on and on. All these examples and more are, are really just the, the breeding ground, okay? The breeding ground for failed expectations that will turn to disappointment, that can cause anger to well up from deep within us. We, we all live in the tension, okay, of, of failed expectations that breed anger. And we all have to resist 
the temptation in those moments when you feel angry to just stuff all of that disappointment and anger deep down inside while hiding behind the mask of everything's fine, right? It's the the four-letter Christian F word. Fine, fine. We we also have to resist the temptation on the other end of the spectrum um, to just blow our tops under this banner of do not let the sun go down on your anger. Wifey, we must talk till 5 o'clock in the morning, which we do sometimes and we love it. Um, Not with that tone of voice. So we've got to be careful there too. Like not letting the sun go down on your anger doesn't mean you've got to dispel every last nuanced piece of the disappointment or the disagreement with someone. This simply means that you need to express in a healthy way, hey, this, this really disappointed me. Maybe you feel angry. I love you. We can dissect it another time. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't let it control you either into an explosive rageaholic. See, like, anger is like a boiling pot of water. That's kind of the image that I see when I think about anger. It's like a boiling pot of water, right? Um, If that boiling pot of water is handled correctly, it can produce a ton of good, like, um, in my mind, uh, boiled corn on the cob. Good stuff. (laughs) Since hot dogs was on our list today to talk about, could have been good hot dogs, maybe. Um, So boiling water can produce a ton of good that way if it's handled correctly. But if it's handled incorrectly... Um, it can do a ton of harm, like third-degree burns on the body, okay? So, so boiling water is not bad, neither is anger. It's simply that the way we handle it is what's important. Like, I, I feel disappointed often. Um, I experience anger often. Um, oftentimes when I am confronted with evil atrocity in our world, right? Um, broken families. Abusive relationships, racism, uh, the effects of addiction on families and communities, homelessness, poverty, genocide, terrorism, sexual slavery. These things, uh, for me, as I I see those things, like the results of marginalized and weaker or or helpless people um, being hurt, that disappoints me and angers me. I think Paul's concern here um, is that we would not nurse that anger. We would not feed that anger like a screaming baby, right? Uh, Because if we do, it grows. And it grows into something really unwholesome, unhealthy, ungodly. Because when we do that, we invite Satan in. We invite him to take advantage of that opportunity to sow destruction into our own hearts as well as into the hearts and the lives of other people that we're called to love. And when we, when, when, when we nurse anger and we invite Satan in, he gets a foothold in our lives and we become like boiling pots of water and we, and we burn people. So do not nurse your anger because it gives Satan an opportunity for destruction. Number three, do honest work so you can share with others. Okay? Do honest work so you can share with others. Paul says in verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so he might have something to share with anyone in need. Now, when we think about the work that we do, um, we, we often think about it in terms of our own wants and needs, right? It's pretty natural. We think about food on our tables. We think about homes to live in and cars to drive and entertainment to be had and new possessions to buy and new decks to put on the house. I'd like to put a new deck on the house. I'd like to just put a deck on the house, period. Not a new one, because there's no old one to replace. Anyways, our budgets are not typically built on a foundation of generosity. Okay? They're, they're not. Should they be? But to be clear, um, when Paul is saying this, uh, I think he's getting at the truth that Christians should not be known for being thieves. Let's not, don't miss that, okay? Um, I do think that most of us here probably feel like we've got this one down, okay? I, 
think this is what might feel like an easier one. I, in our minds, we may already be putting check marks on our list, again, of things done well, things done not so well in this list of commandments and instructions. Well, I think I got those first two, maybe, kind of, but this third one, I'm not a thief. This might seem like a slam dunk for us. Probably, I don't think most of us were out late last night robbing the local gas station, right? Being a stick-up man for the mob. Kind of a secret sinful dream of mine, so y'all can pray for my <laughs> salvation. <laughs> Probably not out sticking people up in the alley for cash. Okay, so I think I think what happens is there's a disconnect for us. I think when we hear this part of this passage, where it's kind of like, oh, I, I I'm not a thief, right? So I, I don't know how much this really applies to me. But if you stop for a minute though and just think about who Paul is speaking to, who's he writing this letter to? He's not he's not writing it to a bunch of thieves sitting in jail cell, right? He's not doing prison ministry with this, although Paul is in prison while writing it. So in one way you could say to in prison ministry, just a little different than we do because um, he's locked up, preaching the gospel. <clears throat> he's speaking to professing Christians in Ephesus, right? That's who he's talking to. A bunch of people who are like, yeah, follow Jesus, love Jesus. These are people who should not be known as lazy thieves, right? And I, and I don't think that Paul, just think about the Apostle Paul, I, I don't think that Paul, and I don't think God does this either, um, since God, I believe, inspired his written word through the writing of the Apostle Paul here, right? So I don't think either one of them is giving instructions about things that aren't really an issue. So, so why would Paul write this to Christians? Why, why would Paul say, let the thief no longer steal. Just talk about one person, maybe, in that church. Well, that, that would, I don't know, I don't think so. Why would Paul write this? How, how could stealing be an issue among Christians? Think about your own life. Like, I think what Paul is doing here is I think he's laying a foundation for the, the work we do. And I think he's laying a foundation for the kind of work we do. And I think he's also laying a foundation for the motivation for the work that we do. Okay? As I look at the text, we are, I think he's calling us to work for our living in as much as our life circumstances allow us to. I think he's calling us to work hard and honestly, kind of work, right? Like, we should not pad our timesheets at work. That would be one way that we would steal. I, I worked 15 minutes longer than I actually did. Put that on my timesheet, right? I used to have a, <clears throat> a boss that would tell me, uh, the pen is mightier than the sword, Joe. So what time you write in there, that's the time you work. This is before I was a Christian. Doesn't mean I haven't struggled with this since then, but we should not pad our timesheets. Um, we should not do personal things on company time. We, we should not inflate the quality of our work while deflating the quality of someone else's work just to make ourselves look better. These are all ways that we could be guilty of stealing as it is um, reflected in our work. And the motivation for all of this, Paul says, is so that we can share what we have with others. Now that's, I mean, that's God's word. Very important. So, so generosity should be the motivating factor behind every budget that we have. That should be the one key motivating factor. I think as we look at our Father in Heaven, this is the way that we model Him in our generosity. He was generous. He gave Christ for us at the cross while we were rebellious enemies towards Him. That's how generous He was. Therefore, we should model that with our finances and in our budgets so I think generosity should be the motivator behind our work. So when you go to work tomorrow, you're not going to work tomorrow just to simply put food on the table. You're going to work tomorrow so that you can be generous in our community and be like Jesus in the way that you give everything you have away, right? That should be the motivating factor. Not to save up more in your savings, not to pay off more credit debt, although those are all good things to do. But those those goals are, are just earthly goals. But when you die, credit card debt dies with you. 
And when you die, the new deck that we really want to build, actually the deck that we want to build, period, it doesn't go with us. So generosity should be the motivator. Um, and I would go so far as to say this. Um, I think if, if, if I'm wrong, I, th I think actually if what I'm saying is right, then I think that if we just seek to work more for more wealth and for our own advancement, then what does that make us? Dishonest thieves in our work, right? Because a thief who goes and steals is only stealing for what reason? Unless you're Robin Hood, which none of us are, okay? Robin Hood's my favorite dudes growing up too. Steal from the rich and give to the poor who were downtrodden. But Otherwise, we're just working for our own advancement, and that's what a thief does. I want, therefore I take. So do honest work instead of stealing so that you can share with others in need. Number four, use grace-filled language instead of tearing people down. Use grace-filled language instead of tearing people down. Verse 29, Paul says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up and fits the occasion so that it may give grace to those who hear. Again, what Paul does here in verse 29 is he returns back to the power and the effect of our words on other people in the community spaces we occupy, okay? Um, so he's done words, he's done thoughts, and he's done actions. Now he's back to words again. And his concern, once again, is that our words have the power of life and death to the heart and the soul of our communities. Uh, our words can either corrupt and contaminate a community, much like a small drop of poison in drinking water can do. Or our words can build up and strengthen or sweeten the communities that we're part of, much like a small drop of honey in a cup of tea. There's visual difference. Now, there are occasions for harsh and direct words, right? Uh, when someone is in danger, what do you do? Stop! Right? When someone is in danger, if they're, if they're blind or they're deaf to the warnings that they've been given to them. <coughs> for instance, <coughs> I don't speed much in our car. <coughs> but when I ride my bike, um, it's really hard not to. And... Um, it's easy to ignore the warning signs on the road. Sometimes I need somebody like my wife to yell at me. Say, slow down. Right? Um, can you imagine if I was just like, ah, shut up. Not being very kind in your words. Not building me up. Yeah, that would, be, that would show that I have a fundamental misunderstanding of what maturity and the use of our words is, right? Okay? If someone is in danger, they're blind, deaf to the warnings of what's coming around the corner, the fitting thing to do is to raise your voice and speak bluntly. This would, as Paul says here, would fit the occasion and it would be motivated by a desire to detour that person from harm and destruction. In other words, it would actually be a very gracious thing. It would be grace-filled words to speak harshly or bluntly to a person who is about to walk into certain destruction. But in our society, it's popular to go spouting off in the mouth with our every opinion or thought, retaliate in pain to others who have hurt us by using our words as weapons to defend ourselves or to get back at others who hurt us. But this is especially tempting, I think, for us, um, for me too, uh, when we're hiding behind our keyboards on social media, hiding behind our trusted groups of, of friends who share the same viewpoints as we criticize other people that we dis disagree with. Again, our words must be motivated by and, and actually have the opportunity to build up anyone who would hear them. So use grace-filled language that builds people up instead of tearing them down. And then number five, do not grieve the Holy Spirit with your words, thoughts, and actions. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit with your words, thoughts, and actions. Verse 30 and 31, Paul says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. 
<coughs> See, throughout verses 25 through 29, the first few verses that we've studied until here, the first five, four points that we talked about, what Paul has been doing is meticulously moving from words that are filled with truth and honesty, right? Instead of lies and dishonesty. And then he moved to thoughts that uh, are, are filled with anger. And he moved on to actions that are filled with honesty and generosity. And then he comes back around again to words that are filled with grace that build others up. See, our, our lives are clothed with words, thoughts, and actions that affect other people around us. And, and listen, it's not just that the clothing of our lives, our words, thoughts, and actions, just affect other people. Our words, our thoughts, and our actions affect the Spirit of God who's living inside of us. It's thought-provoking uh, to think about this for a minute. Think about the truth that even though you and I try to escape the pain and the hardship of this life through carelessness, self-centeredness, <coughs> often careless words and self-centered words, <coughs> careless and self-centered thoughts, careless and self-centered actions, in the midst of our attempting to escape life, <coughs> in the midst of our escaping that, the Spirit of God is living inside of us, and He cannot escape that. He does not want to escape that. Not only does, not only does He not escape that, our, our words and our thoughts and our actions cause Him to grieve. Think about this word grieve. Think about that, the depth of that word. Like when we speak dishonestly, or when we nurse our anger, or when, when we refuse to be generous, when we choose to be lazy, when we choose to be selfish, when we choose to use destructive language, we cause the Spirit of God to grieve. Don't miss this. Like one scholar said it this way, he, he rightly says that the, the one, Spirit of God, the one who has been given to us to comfort us in our pain and our fear and our doubt and our struggle, the very one who's been given as a counselor to us to comfort us in the midst of that, he feels deep pain and grief when we clothe ourselves with words, thoughts, and actions that are contrary to his desires. Our failure to live up to the expectations of the heart of God causes the heart of God to grieve. And to grieve like you or I would grieve at a funeral of a lost loved one. That's the kind of grief that happens inside the heart of God when we choose to ignore His commands and rebel against the good things He's, he's asked for us to do. I remember the day my mom died. I remember sitting at her bedside just weeping. I remember preaching her funeral. And I remember being at the graveside, just the surreal feeling that, oh, she's gone. I remember, it's been four years, I remember the multiple times where out of the middle of nowhere, I'd wake up in the middle of the night weeping and crying because my mommy was gone. That's the kind of grief the Spirit of God feels. Think about this. Not just when you do this. When the entire world does this. That's a grief that I don't think any of us can wrap our minds around. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Right? Kind of brings a, a whole new understanding and, and even experience. Concept of disappointment. See, at the core of what Paul is saying here in verses 3 through 31. It's that our words, our thoughts, and our actions that are motivated by malicious intent. That's the other side of what he's talking about. In other words, when we use our words, our thoughts, our actions in a way that seeks to tear someone else down rather than build them up, we're being malicious. James says the anger of man does not produce righteousness. Out of one side of our mouths, we worship God, praising him, singing songs, glory be to God. Now, the other side of our mouths, we gossip and slander and curse people who were made in the image of the God who loves us. 
it should not be this way, right? Like when it comes to our words, our thoughts and our actions and, and this, this idea of them being malicious, so you just think about your life. Like it could be a reaction, just a reactionary moment, right? A reaction to someone causing you pain, right? Kid disobeys, you feel disrespected, go sit on the couch, how could you? Right? Those words, the way that we use our words that way can severely wound and damage our children then. I'm guilty of this. So it could be a reaction to someone causing us pain or causing us to feel disrespected. It could, be, could even be premeditated for us. Like after uh, a long night of letting something simmer in our hearts. could actually be intentional too sometimes for us, which I think is harder to uncover. could be intentional. Tearing someone else down to promote ourselves. You ever do that at work? Like, hey, boss, man, like, that guy sucks. I could do his job a lot better than he does. Yeah, probably, maybe true. You've now used the truth as a weapon to wound someone else, right? <coughs> okay, either way, malicious intent is the kind of intent that seeks harm someone else, causes the Holy Spirit to grieve. So do not grieve the Holy Spirit with your malicious words, thoughts, and actions. Finally, number six, kindly and tenderly forgive as you've been forgiven. See, Paul says be kind to one another tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Listen to this. Listen. Uh, the, the remedy for taking off the dirty clothing of our old lives is the laundry detergent of forgiveness. Okay? The remedy for taking off the dirty clothes of our old lives is the laundry detergent of forgiveness. And many scholars have rightly pointed out that the word forgive simply means to either set free or to redeem or to wipe clean. <laughs> Another scholar, um, writer, author, commentator, says that the essence of love is forgiveness. The very essence of loving someone is to forgive them. So think about this. Without forgiveness, there is no love. So if you haven't forgiven your wife for something, you are not loving her. Right? If you have not forgiven your children or your husband for something, you're not loving them. Right? That's heavy. If I haven't forgiven my employer or, 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 or a coworker, I'm not loving them. Scriptures are pretty replete with commands and instructions about how to love people. We've turned it into an emotion that just needs gratification. That's not love. The essence of love is forgiveness of what you do with it. Love is really an action. On adjective. See, when someone wrongs us or fails to meet our expectations, we are called to love that person and to extend kindness towards that person to set them free, to set them free from the harm that we might rightly bring against them, and then to wipe the slate clean of any memory of their wrongdoing against us. Now, now this does not mean <coughs> this does not mean that we should build a community or a society, or a family that is devoid of appropriate consequences for wrongdoing. There's a tension here in this, okay? Um, but it does mean that we release people from the harm they've done against us by seeking their ultimate good. But this does not mean that people who are experiencing horrific abuse must just lower their heads and in Endure the abuse for the sake of the abuser getting saved. No. No. We should never use the principle of forgiveness and love to enable abusiveness or destructiveness, to enable abusive or destructive individuals to continue that abuse or continue that hurt on helpless people's lives. We must seek the welfare of people who've been marginalized and are helpless, we must also seek appropriate consequences for people who perpetuate the abuse, right? While not seeking their destruction. There's a lot there. Goodness, it's a big topic. I would say this too. Um, we must remember that unforgiveness actually does 
the unforgiver more harm than it does the original offender. Okay? When you and I choose not to forgive someone, we're not hurting anybody but ourselves. We're just stuffing all that down inside. <clears throat> when I don't forgive someone for the way that they treat me or the way they failed to meet my expectations, then what I do is, is I constantly replay the harm they did against me in my mind and in my heart. And then I harbor or, or nurse that wound and then it festers and then what happens becomes a boiling pot of water. And it comes out all over the place in, in, in the form of rage and bitterness and anger and resentment and slander. See, unforgiveness is like a cancer that infects one individual and then it spreads throughout an entire community. Dangerous. It should not be this way among a community that professes to have the corner on the market in regards to forgiveness through the cross of Christ. Yet, I will say that what turns people away from the church most often is that we are an unforgiving group of people. It should not be that way, right? So kindly and tenderly forgive as you've been forgiven. Now there's a problem in the midst of all this, isn't there? I don't know if you noticed it, caught it. There's a big problem in the midst of all of this as you think through the implications, not just the implications, but like this is pretty explicitly clear in black and white. You can't really get around what Paul's saying here. It just is what it is. No real nuance. It's not like you're going to find 50 different opinions on what Paul's trying to say here. It's pretty straightforward. I don't know if you're aware of the problem yet. Maybe you've felt the tension of an underlying problem throughout this sermon. Let me summarize where we've been. Like our lives are to be clothed in words, thoughts, and actions. God's instructions are clear on what it looks like, right? We're to be clothed in Christ-likeness. But we're called to be a mirror image of Jesus to our community. Our, our, our lives should be clothed in words, thoughts, and actions that are loving and joyful and peaceful and patient and kind and good and faithful and gentle and, and self-controlled, right? So, so what's the problem in the midst of this? So the problem, I think, is that every one of us hasn't just accidentally fallen short of all these um, instructions, or you could say commands. We've actually intentionally rebelled against them. If, if we're to be a mirror image of God, then the mirror is broken, right? We are broken, and the image of God in us is imperfect. Our clothing is tainted. It's, it's dirty. And honestly, we are without hope at this point to, to, to ever get this completely right. So what do you do? What do you do with that problem and that, that tension? We walk out of here today consume the sermon like it was a great moralistic pep talk that just made you feel bad at the end? <laughs> Do better. Get my morals in line this week. Stop lying so much. Stop holding up people in the alleyways. Right? I mean, <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's either a great moralistic pep talk. You can go out here and pat yourself on the back and try to do better and think that somehow God's going to love you more because you did better, right? That, that's not going to get us anywhere. Like, that's easy to preach that, okay? Easy to preach that and get our check marks, walk out, go home, or, um, you know, yeah. Great moralistic pep talk, like, help me become a better version of myself. <laughs> the, the other flip side of that would be that uh, we could just let the reality of these imperfections just make us hang our heads in shame and guilt and despair, right? I, just, I don't think that's right either. So where, where do we go? What do we do? I want to just invite you for a minute to consider the broader context of Scripture, okay? The broader context of the gospel, you could say. Like what Paul says here in Ephesians is connected to at least hundreds if not thousands, depends on where you're at in your theology. 
They had to do at least hundreds, if not thousands of years of history in God's dealing and relationship with his people. So you and I could probably just about honestly go anywhere. Now, not, not like just open the Bible, let it fall. Oh, look, the Holy Spirit said something to me. Not, not saying that. But you could probably just about go anywhere in the Bible and make a connection to what Paul is saying or to what God is saying here through Paul and make a pretty easy contextual connection, right? Like in the context of this, of this whole book, I want you to think about Samson. I want you to think about for a minute. You know Samson. Samson is the one who had the supernatural God-given strength to face down enemies of all sorts and sizes, bring them to utter destruction. Dude was awesome. I, when I think of Samson, I see the Hulk. Green. Small and kind of weak until he gets angry. Actually, he's always angry. Dude, he, like, he tore a lion and a bear to shreds with his bare hands. Called out the enemies of Israel, and when he was attacked by them, he killed thousands of them with the jawbone of an ass. Okay? <laughs> Dude's awesome. Superhero stuff. It was used in powerful ways by God in the book of Judges. During a time that, that, like I said last week, when all of Israel was doing what was right in their own eyes rather than doing what pleases the Lord. He, he was a hero that everyone could look to for leadership during a time of like spiritual darkness and terrible suffering. That's the great part about Samson. Samson had a problem, though. Well, actually, he had lots of problems, similar to the problems we have. Even though he was chosen by God, even though he was gifted by God, even though he was empowered by God, he had a weak character. His life was clothed in filthy words. His life was clothed in filthy thought. His life was clothed in filthy actions. He was a drunk. He was frequently finding himself at the prostitution house. Leader of Israel, okay? pathological liar. He was intoxicated by women. He even called one of the women he was with a heifer. Now, I won't go any further than that other than just say, yeah, like how's that for clothing yourself with filthy words, filthy thoughts, filthy actions? We oftentimes teach the story of Samson as a moralistic story to children, right? I can do this, don't do that sort of a way. Kind of, kind of a mentality when we do that from a very young age with our children then with ourselves that leads to a legalistic performance-based religion where God is happy with us because we do more right things than we do wrong things. Of course, the problem with that kind of interpretation is it leads people to become fake. Well, like happy on the outside, I'm fine. Dead on the inside kinds of legalists who are absolutely blind to the transforming, life-giving presence of God. And, and, and then when that happens, we go seeking elsewhere for something that will just help us. And actually, that blindness is exactly what happened to Samson. Remember the story? Gets his eyes burned out, gets thrown in prison as a consequence. Now, now, he's, uh, now he's in physical blindness. He's in prison. He's an entertainer of crowds. He's completely broken. And listen, in his brokenness, he surrenders. There's a great topic conversation this week. He surrenders. He's broken. There's something about the pain of brokenness that makes full surrender possible for us. And the beauty of this story with Samson is that the Lord forgives Samson, right? He forgives him. Shows him the extent of his love. Forgives him and then uses him to remove his enemies at the very end of the story. Now, it what is probably tempting for us, if you've been in church for any longer than 15 minutes, uh, would be just to hear that story about Samson and just immediately think that, yes, God takes broken people and he does great things through them. And immediately you'd say, that's true, Joe. It is true. God takes broken people and he does great things through them. <coughs> that's not the big idea of the story of Samson. That's a secondary storyline. The big meta-narrative of that story, the big idea of that story of Samson is that you and I are rebellious and blind just like Samson. We are 
deceptive. We are intoxicated just like Samson, and we need to surrender to God's forgiveness, surrender to his love. Like, and, and like Israel, like we need someone like Samson, right? Don't we? We need someone like Samson who has all this strength and power, but we need a Samson without the weaknesses that we have, without the problems that we and Samson bring to the table. We need a Samson that will rescue us, and that person is Jesus, right? Jesus is our Samson. Jesus is the one who comes to us with words to build us up rather than tearing us down like we deserve for our rebellion. And Jesus is the one who unleashes his love upon us as he dies on the cross in our place. He's, he's the one who stands in the way of the wrath and the punishment that we deserve. He's the one who gives us new sight when we once walked in spiritual blindness. He's the one who gives us the strength to put on new clothing. And in fact, Jesus is our clothing. Through the Spirit of God, we are sealed for the day of redemption. Signed, sealed, delivered. If you've trusted in Christ, then your adoption papers, signed, sealed, and delivered. Signed by the blood of Jesus that can't be erased. Sealed by the Holy Spirit so it can never come undone. And delivered into the Father's hands for all of eternity. Jesus secures a future for us that is beyond our wildest imaginations. Jesus himself is the vision of the good life that enables us to be clothed in the words of righteousness and to be renewed in our thinking through the truth of the gospel and to be transformed in our behavior through the power of the Spirit. Like our lives are clothed in words, thoughts, and actions. And the question for all of us is this. Like are your words, your thoughts, and your actions clothed in Christ? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Pray, Father, that you would just continue taking your word, drill it deep down inside of our hearts, causing true transformation and change to take place in us. Help us to see um, through the problems and through all the commands and the instructions. Help us to see your son, Jesus. Through the power of the cross and the power of the empty tomb comes and sets us free from our enemies. Sets us free from Satan, sin, and the grave. Father, as we prepare to take communion, I pray that you would help our hearts to just settle and to see the work that your shed blood and your broken body did for us that day at the cross. That you, Father, provided a way that we could run out of that grave. So I pray that you would do that for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.